Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. As time goes on, whenever I'm preparing something, it seems like I'm connecting different dots. You've heard the, the quote, if I've seen further or stood higher, it's only because I've stood in the shoulders of giants. And as I look at different things, like, well, what about this thing I learned from, from David 10 years ago? Or about this thing I heard here and this? And I end up stringing it together in a different way. That is, that is mine, but at the same time, it's hard to feel like I'm not just blatantly plagiarizing everything. So. I titled this drash, The Meaning of Purim, Echoes of Adam and Foreshadowing of Messiah in the Book of Esther. And that is a mouthful, but I couldn't think of another way to phrase it. Purim is a minor holiday, but it is very, very beloved, like Hanukkah, also a, a minor holiday. And we don't have a Sukkot talent show. We have a Hanukkah talent show. And we don't have a Shavuot or Passover play, generally. We have a Purim play. For those of you who may not be familiar, there are a number of traditions surrounding Purim. First off, God is hidden throughout the story, so as a tradition, we hide ourselves in a costume. And this is not Jewish Halloween. You don't dress up as goblins, ghouls, and ghosts. It is very common in Israel to see kids for the whole week around Purim walking to school dressed up as Spider-Man. We eat hamantaschen, a three-sided cookie, as it's a custom that Haman was wearing a three-sided hat. And reading the Megillah, the book of Esther, is par for the course. This afternoon, we'll have a play retelling the story with a bit of a creative and dramatic license. For those of you very unfamiliar with Purim, the story is found in the book of Esther, and it takes place while the Jewish people are in captivity and under Persian rule. And here's a quick recap. King Ahasuerus held some pretty wild parties, which include large quantities of alcohol. And while the text is fairly kind to him, the Midrash discusses how he would drink, massively overconsume alcohol, and put on the garments of the priests and dance around. So the text is very kind to him versus what the tradition has about him. The important thing about him is he's a good guy in the end. King Ahasuerus gets rid of his wife, Vashti, and searches for a new queen. Esther, a Jewish girl in Persia, ends up being selected. Her cousin Mordechai works at the palace and also raised Esther. He also tells her to not tell anyone that she's Jewish. Mordechai had saved the king's life from a couple of discount assassins, named Bigfin and Teresh, and nothing was ever done to honor Mordecai after he'd saved the king's life. For reasons not explained, a man named Haman rises to power in the palace and is made second in charge in the entire kingdom. When Mordecai refuses to bow to that man, Haman, boo. That's another tradition. We boo and we say Haman. When Mordecai refused to bow to him, which is a topic I addressed in my drosh last year, Haman is enraged and decides that he'll not only kill Mordecai, but he'll kill all of Mordecai's people. That's a bit of an overreaction, which we'll, we'll talk about. After convincing the king it's a good idea, so he gets the legal authority to do it, he casts lots. Essentially, he rolls dice to decide when he's going to do it. When Mordecai finds out what's going on, he encourages Esther to approach the king and convince him to overturn Haman's decree which was signed by the king. That is when Esther says, I'd rather not. And if someone comes to the king uninvited, they're usually killed. And that's when Mordecai responds to her, 
Do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from among all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and rescue will arise for the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's house will perish. Esther ends up going before the king. She's not killed. The king discovers that Mordecai had saved his life and is publicly honored by Haman, which when you think about it is hilarious. After a few banquets hosted by Esther, it is revealed that Haman is trying to kill all the Jews and that Esther's Jewish. The king is enraged. The Jewish people are not exterminated. Instead, Haman is hanged on the gallows that were intended for Mordecai. So in the end, we're told, for Haman, the son of Amedatha, the Agagite, the adversary of the Jews, had devised to destroy the Jews, and he cast the purr, that is, the lot, to terrify them and destroy them. And when she, Esther, came before the king, he commanded through letters that his, his evil device that he had devised against the Jews return upon his own head and destroy him and his sons on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words in this letter, and what they saw concerning this matter, and what happened to them. I've got some problems with this story. Again, last year I discussed the problems around Mordecai not bowing to Haman in the traditional thing there and how it doesn't really add up. And this year we're going to address a couple other issues that I have with the story of Purim. And a lot of movies have been made about it, so it's really easy to take a look at it and start scrutinizing things that don't quite add up with how people behave, because these are not two-dimensional characters in a text. They're real people with real problems and real struggles. And we tend to forget that. These are real human beings. Problem number one. Mordecai's words to Esther in chapter 4. On the surface, Mordecai's words kind of make sense, but when you look at it, they don't. Do not imagine to yourself you will escape the king's house from among the Jews. Okay. Or if you remain silent at this time, relief and rescue will arise for the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's household will perish. So Esther's off the hook. That is not what I would say to someone if I really needed him for something. If I were Mordecai, I would have said, Esther, we're all counting on you. You're the perfect person. You're in the perfect place to effect change. God made you queen for this reason right now. We're all counting on you, Esther. It's your time to shine. Instead, Mordecai kind of takes the pressure off. We don't need you. Let us down and God will just get someone else. So that's strange. I don't think any of us would usually phrase things that way. So I have an issue with Mordecai's pep talk. And the other issue is, why is this holiday called Lots? Purim, Purim is the, Pur is the Persian word for Lots. It's not Hebrew. We don't name any other holidays like this. Like Fourth of July is... Independence Day, not Redcoat Day. But the text doesn't really add up why we call it lots. Verse 24 in chapter 9, Haman tried to destroy the Jews by casting the pur, ancient Persian for lot. When it came to the king's attention, destruction was done to Haman instead. That's why we call it Purim. What? That doesn't really add up. Pur is not Hebrew, it's Persian. So why is the festival called Lots? That's kind of out of order if you take a look at it. Why is verse 25 smack dab in the middle there? Why isn't it when it came to the king's attention, destruction was unto him and instead? That's why it's called Lots. Why is it that way? So those are my two issues we're going to talk about today. And I believe the answer to all of this, Mordecai's confusing pep talk and the odd name for the holiday can be found in a law in the Torah. Several years ago, at Passover of 2014, 
I was having a conversation with one of our members here, Christian Shippey, and he asked me why I think Yeshua is called the last Adam, which is in 1 Corinthians 15. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. I probably gave him some half answer on the spot because he kind of broadsided me with the question. And then he went into a clearly well-thought-out string of verses tied together and presented a very neat case. Christian and I discussed all sorts of neat elements relating to a law in the Torah. And he tied it to Yeshua. He tied it to different things Moses did. And there's all kinds of neat parallels. And over two years later, he gave a drosh, which touched on some of those themes. The kangaroo conundrum is what he called it. He's more succinct at naming things than I am. He gave it June 25th and 2016. It's on our YouTube channel if you want to look it up. In that, kind of his thesis is, one way Adam is a picture of Yeshua is that he was willing to take the fruit from Eve and eat it as well. He would not leave her to take the punishment alone, but took it upon himself. We see this in the Torah. Every vow and every binding oath of self-affliction, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. However, if her husband remains silent from day to day, he has upheld all the vows and prohibitions she has assumed. He has upheld them since he remained silent on the day he heard it. If he revokes them after having heard them, he shall bear her iniquity. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses concerning a man and his wife, a father and his daughter, in her youth, while in her father's house. From the conversation we had back at Passover in 2014 and all the years since that time, We've discussed the themes around this topic, and I've thought about the surrounding ideas quite a bit. Back in Genesis, Adam willingly ate the fruit. Adam was not deceived. Eve was. Paul specifies that. And the typical response people think when God asks Adam, Adam, what have you done? And Adam says, you gave me this woman. We usually interpret that as Adam trying to pass the blame to Eve. The woman, she, she got me, she duped me, she tricked me. And Adam wasn't tricked, and, and maybe he was trying to pass blame. It's not my fault, God. It's this woman you gave me. Blame her. But let's look at it another way. What if when Adam says, you gave me this woman, and this is what Christian based a lot of the stuff off of, so I'll give him a lot of credit there. What if he was saying, God, what did you expect me to do? You gave her to me. Am I going to let her die on her own? You gave her to me, and I'm not leaving her. And then we have Paul calling Yeshua the last Adam in 1 Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians saying, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Adam did not have the power to dissolve Eve's sin. Only Yeshua can take away our sin. Adam is a shadow of Messiah there. Like the father or husband of a woman who made a foolish vow, Yeshua is stepping in and taking our sin, saying, no, I'm not allowing you to take this. It's mine. Even though we deserve it. Yeshua doesn't just take our sin away from us through the sacrifice he made and stop. He continually intercedes for us to the Father in 1 John, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Yeshua Messiah, the righteous. Romans 8, Messiah Yeshua is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. 
Hebrews 7, therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Messiah, Yeshua. It is incredible to fathom that not only did Yeshua willingly endure unimaginable horrors and pain on our behalf, but after this, after we put him through the worst pain any of us could ever imagine or contrive, he continually intercedes for us to the Father. When we intercede for those who persecute us and cause us suffering, even at risk to ourselves, we are taking on the character traits of Messiah. I'm sure some of you see a bit of a parallel at this point. Adam ate the fruit to stick with Eve. He couldn't undo what she had done, but he could stick with her no matter what, and so he did. Esther interceded on behalf of the Jewish people to the king and risked her life in doing so. Esther was sticking with her people no matter what, even at risk to her own life. Yeshua offered his own life and intercedes for us to the Father. Yeshua, the line of the tribe of Judah, will stick with his people no matter what. But what about the foolish vow piece? That law in Numbers 30. Why am I bringing up this random law in the Torah and tying it into the book of Esther? Well, let's get to that. Remember, problem number one is Mordecai's words to Esther in chapter four. It begins with the issue of what Mordecai says to Esther, and it's easy to gloss over it, but it's not exactly what I would say in his position. Remember that. Mordecai ordered to reply to Esther, because he's talking through her through uh, intermediary. Do not imagine to yourself that you will escape in the king's house from among the Jews, for if you remain silent... Emphasis mine. At this time, relief and rescue will arise for the Jews from elsewhere, and you and your father's household will perish. Again, I would have said, Esther, we're counting on you. We need you. Instead, Mordecai takes most of the pressure off. You'll have a personal consequence, but we're going to be fine no matter what you do. And that's strange. And let's take a look at that phrase that remains silent. And that's why I'm tying it to Numbers 30. For if you... Remain silent, and then in Numbers 30, if her husband remained silent, it's the same phrase used in the Hebrew. And in case you're thinking that's just a common phrase, Rusty, it's used all kinds of places. That's the only place that phrase is used in the entire Torah. And there are three places in the entire Tanakh it is used. Once in the book of Job and the other two right here. As far as it being, it's, there's no way that it's a coincidence. Mordecai is clearly calling out and reminding her about that law. But what else is there that, that goes over? We have the first crossover there that remains silent. But what else is similar in those passages? Mordecai says father's household. Why? Why would Mordecai say father's household? Because we have that same phrase in Numbers 30, Beit Aviha. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses concerning a man and his wife, a father and his daughter, in her youth, while in her father's house. We have Mordecai using these phrases, and there wouldn't be much reason for Mordecai to use the phrase father's household, unless he's alluding to that passage in the Torah. Because Mordecai raised her. The text specifies she didn't have a father or a mother, so why would Mordecai start talking about her father's household? Mordecai is her dad for all intentions and purposes. 
So we have these two solid crossovers from that passage. Mordecai is using language that is not only strange and unique, but specific to that law. Remain silent. Father's household. What's he getting at? What's the point? Taking Esther to this relatively obscure commandment in Torah is odd. So why is he doing it? So we have these two places, and it's a big question mark. And let's pause for a moment, and we'll talk about something seemingly completely unrelated. Who here has heard of a substance called graphene? Anyone? A few people. If you're into science, you've heard of it. It's a really neat, relatively speaking, recent discovery, and it has massive implications across the manufacturing world from batteries that last for weeks on end to super strong ultralight materials. And you know how it was discovered? Some guys were sitting around. They had a block of graphite, the stuff you make pencils out of, and they took some sticky tape, put it on the graphite, peeled it off, and they discovered graphene. That's what Nobel Prizes are made of, apparently. <laughs> the substance that could change the modern world, and a couple of guys discovered it with tape. That means any time when I was a kid, I had a pencil and scotch tape in front of me, I was a step away from a Nobel, piece, from a Nobel Prize. And maybe I'm the only one who feels that way, but when something so obvious comes to my attention, I feel silly I didn't think of it myself. So when this next part was pointed out to me, I felt a little silly that I didn't see it there before. And I learned this from Rabbi David Foreman. Every vow and every binding oath of self-affliction, her husband, Isha, may confirm, or her husband, Isha, may annul. And Hebrew is interesting, and the vowel markings can sometimes ever so slightly change the pronunciation of a word and the meaning. Let's take that word, her husband. Aleph, Yud, Shin, He. And notice the He, you can see it, has the dot in the middle of it. What happens if we get rid of that dot? What does that word become? Why is Mordecai calling this out to her? Without the hey, it means woman. With the dot, it means her husband. Mordecai, tossing this call back to Esther about the commandment regarding the woman who made a foolish vow, Mordecai was telling Esther that she cannot keep silent and that her job to go to the king, why? Because the double meaning here How does that verse read if we get rid of that dot in the hay? Every vow and every binding oath of self-affliction, the woman may confirm it, or the woman may annul it. And that's quite a few connections going from a single verse in Esther 4 back to this commandment in Bob Mibar in Numbers. We have remained silent. We have father's house, Beta Her husband, or woman, depending on if you have the dot there or not. Mordecai is telling Esther... Just as the law of a man annulling the vow of a woman under his authority, you, the queen, a person in authority, have the power to annul this wicked decree. Don't remain silent. Go before the king. You are in a position of authority here. And here as we have an echo of Adam and a shadow of Messiah. Adam took on that punishment because no matter what, he wasn't going to leave Eve. He was sticking with her. The day Adam heard of it, he took it upon himself. And we see a shadow of Messiah, how he takes our sin, willingly offering himself as a sacrifice, and then continually intercedes for us to the Father. If you remember from the beginning, though, we still have another problem. And I've never liked that this holiday was called Purim. Growing up, I was taught to scrutinize a lot of things, and my parents would play devil's advocate with me constantly. The festivals in the Torah make sense in some way in how they're named. Pesach, Shavuot, Yom Teruah, or Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot. The names make sense. Even Hanukkah makes sense. Dedication. 
Now, what about some other American holidays, whether secular or Christian or otherwise? Those with some different names here, like Easter, Ishtar. We get some problems there once you dig into that. And what about what a holiday is supposed to celebrate? It's an interesting name, Christmas. Okay, at least the name makes sense. Halloween, at least it's descriptive. Fourth of July, Independence Day, makes sense. Most of our holidays are easily descriptive about what we're celebrating. Now, Purim. Pur is ancient Persian for a lot. People would cast lots when they wanted to leave a decision up to the gods or up to chance. Or just say, forget it, I'll let the dice decide. A modern equivalent is rolling dice. So why is it called Purim? Because Haman, the bad guy, cast lots, deciding when he would commit genocide. And the lots, the dice he rolled, told him the month of Adar. Imagine a psychopath killer holding a group captive and deciding that he was going to kill all of them sometime in the next six hours. And when am I going to do it, he says. And he pulls out a six-sided die. I'm going to roll this, and whatever number comes up, that's how many hours you have to live. And then a SWAT team bursts in and saves everyone. And the survivors are overjoyed, and they have an annual get-together at how their lives were saved, and they call that annual get-together DICE. That would never happen. Why would you call it that? They would never call it that. That's kind of what gets done with Purim. Haman cast lots to decide what, when he was going to kill us all. And so at the end, we say, let's call the holiday lots. And the explanation we're given is disjointed. For Haman, the son of Amadeth, all the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had devised to destroy the Jews. And he cast the pur, that is the lot, to terrify them and destroy them. Great, that's descriptive of what he did. Next verse. And when she, Esther, came before the king, he commanded through letters that his evil device that he had devised against the Jews return upon his own head and to destroy him and his sons on the gallows. Okay? Therefore, they call these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words in this letter and what they saw concerning this matter and what happened to them, these verses are not in correct order. If you think about it, verse 25 should come first here. Then verse 24 and 26. With that order of the verses, why is it called Pur? We're told Haman used for lots. And then it came back to him. The order doesn't make sense with how it's written. If you were going to explain why it's called Purim, we wouldn't order it this way. And I believe that's because there is one last connection from Esther here in chapter 9 and that excerpt in Numbers 30 regarding the law of the woman and the foolish vow. Every vow and every binding oath of self-affliction, her husband may confirm it or her husband may annul it. What's the Hebrew word for annul in this verse? And does it look familiar? And it's in bold. Her husband may confirm it, her husband may annul it. In Numbers 30, and then in Esther 9, therefore they call these days Purim, after the name Pur. You notice a cut carryover of some of the letters because the Hebrew word for annul shares a root, fe, vav, and resh. And that is a really interesting thing that at the end of Esther 9, when we're told about why it's called lots, Purim, it talks about how Haman's decree was annulled and brought back on him. So that's why it's called Purim. 
And there's another way we can read this whole thing, because it's a double meaning. Why are these days called Purim? Because of the lots? Well, sure. And also because of the annulment achieved by God through Esther. Because that's what Esther ended up doing, and that's what God ended up doing for us. He annulled the wicked decree that was against us. And that's where we get these incredible pictures of Messiah, the last Adam in the book of Esther. It's not only called Purim because of the lots. It's also called Purim because Esther effectively annulled the decree against us. And that is very reminiscent of what Rav Shul says in Colossians. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, which would have gotten all killed. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. What happened in Esther again? It wasn't just a victory. God made a public display of it all. Haman was publicly humiliated, and then his wicked plans were completely foiled and he was killed. Those who had aligned with him were killed, and thousands of people converted to Judaism. Just as Adam took the fruit away from Eve, saying, no, I'm not leaving you to take this alone. I'm with you no matter what. And Esther made the righteous decision not to leave the rest of her people alone, but to take a stand with them and risk her life to intercede for them to the king. Yeshua takes a stand with us, even though we have done nothing to deserve it. Our Messiah tells us, I'm not leaving you alone to die in your sins. I will die for you. And suffering the most horrible punishments, all of which you deserved, after that, I will be your advocate to the Father. Now, what about Haman's role in all of this? Haman felt he was disrespected in his official position when Mordecai refused to bow. And he sought to get revenge through legal means. He technically had the legal authority to do what he was doing. Years ago, I became interested in looking at various villains in film and stories and what motivated them and what made a really good villain. And villains are often what makes a story really great. The hero needs someone to fight. And more often than not, heroes will be these two-dimensional characters and the villain ends up being this three-dimensional character because we have to feel like there's a threat because generally most stories have happy endings and we have to feel like there's a chance that our hero could lose. Otherwise, it's a boring story. And as a result of this, villains, villains often get some of the most interesting lines. And by the way, there are a number of villains in cinema that have been modeled a bit after Haman. Psychopaths using chance to decide when to kill people. Whether it's the bad guy in a movie No Country for Old Men when he says, what's the most you've ever lost in a coin toss? Or the Batman villain Joker in both film and comics, each using a coin toss to decide who to kill and who to let live. Haman is remembered as a villain both directly and indirectly millennia later. And a few years ago, I asked myself a really tough question. Who am I the most like in the book of Esther? And we all want to be either Mordecai or Esther. Courageous, heroic, brave, going through a genuine struggle and then coming out on top in the end as a hero for God and our people. Only that wasn't who I realized I was. And if we're being really honest with ourselves, very few of us are like that. Just as Satan quotes scripture better than any of us possibly can, we weaponize the words of a king against each other 
over our fights and squabbles. I remember a friend said years ago that God's army, unlike virtually any other army on the planet, spends most of its time polishing its own armor and attacking itself. We weaponize the Torah against each other. We weaponize God's word against each other. And we lie to ourselves saying that we're just doing it to uphold high standards. I'm doing it because this is what God wants me to do. When in reality, we just became Haman in our story and in someone else's story. We have high standards to keep. And a big difference here is that at least Satan knows he's working against God. We'll kid ourselves that we are. We're told to be kind and compassionate to other people, to each other. We're commanded to encourage each other in repentance and in righteousness. In Ephesians 4, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God and Messiah also has forgiven you. How do we forgive each other? I don't have slides for this, by the way. As God forgave us. That is the model we have for forgiveness. That we can do something worthy of death and he is willing to completely repair and reconcile a relationship. Completely. And he calls us to be sons of God and judges. He wants to place us in positions of authority even after we have failed him completely. I'm not saying we don't expect great things from each other. I am saying we apply the minimum effective dose in how to get there. Haman was disrespected by Mordecai and sought to slaughter not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish people. Every day of our lives, we each have a choice that we can make. Are you going to be like Esther or are you going to be like Haman? Are you going to become like Messiah or like the devil? Do you find ways to bring God's love into this world or are you just trying to bring in God's wrath on your own? Rav Shul wrote in Colossians 3, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Most of us don't become literal Hamans because most of us don't have the wealth, power, and authority that he had. It's not because we're that great. Most of us don't have the opportunity. Let's not forget that repentance is a key part of all this. Where we mess up so often is that we don't assume that someone, we assume that someone won't repent, they can't repent, and that God won't work in someone's life to bring them to repent. And we never encourage them to repentance in the first place. We watch them mess up and we're going to hold it against them. And we become Haman, so eager to weaponize the words of a king against those who we find undesirable. The people who we feel hurt by and they must deserve it. And that's what we tell ourselves. They deserve it. But we don't want to talk about what we deserve. We see a wealth of themes in the book of Esther and around the story of Purim. We talk about how it ties into Adam and Eve and in the garden, how Adam took the fruit willingly from Eve and ate it because he would not leave Eve by herself to die. Just as Yeshua was willing to die for us, Adam was self-sacrificing for his bride too. 
And we see the commandment of the woman making a foolish vow. If a woman is in her father's house or if she's married and her husband is silent the day he hears the vow, he can confirm it or he can speak up and annul it. We saw the play in words with Esther. Here it was Isha, not her husband, but Isha the woman annulled it. And that word annul is a play in words with the holiday Purim, what it's named after. In the end, Haman was humiliated, made a public display of, and triumphed over. And the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, that was signed by a king, that was signed by a king, was annulled. The part that's against us, not the whole thing, by the way. Read your Bibles if you think that's what's going on. The death sentence we all deserve was reversed. And Rav Shul echoes that in Colossians 2. In the work Messiah does for us, the wonderful work of salvation. Could the music team please come up? You'd pray with me. Havinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. You are a mighty king who is with us in times of calamity and sorrow and joy and security. All is through your hand. All is through your power. We ask that you would do the work of Messiah in our hearts and in our minds. That we would become more like him, willing to correct and forgive quickly, and that we would be more like you, Father, slow to anger and great in kindness. Please guide us away from wherever we have become the villain of someone else's story, holding up so quickly what we think they deserve instead of guiding them to repentance and love and salvation. We cannot do this alone, Father. We need Messiah working in us. Lord, You know my struggles. I do not have what it takes alone. We need your Holy Spirit guiding us. And we gratefully thank you for providing through your divine power all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Messiah Yeshua. To him, to the Lamb of God, belongs power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings forever and ever. Lord, please forgive us where we fall short. And when someone else falls short, please put in their hearts to repent and in ours to forgive so that we can quickly get back to the work of your kingdom as one unified people. Amen. Shabbat shalom.